does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hey, good morning to you. 8 o'clock on a Wednesday in a spectacular sunrise and what looks to be a beautiful day here in Indianapolis. Jake Query along with Kevin Bowen, Mark Dykton here as well. And joining us now on the Payless Sickers Hotline, he is in his, I believe, sixth season with the title of President of Basketball Operations for the Indiana Pacers. Kevin Pritchard joins us on the program this morning. Kevin, first off, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, guys. Glad to be on. Hey, I want to begin with this. Yesterday, I know that you you know, kind of did your season-ending wrap with the media and discussing things. For those that did not hear it, um, I've got a pretty good idea, I think, what, what fans and what the media as well felt about the way this season went. Right. But give us your perspective. In your in the in the opinion of Kevin Pritchard, this season was what for Indiana? Well, I think there was a lot of growth this year. You know, we, we played a lot of players from Neesmith to Nemhard to Matherin, um, who had little or no experience. And normally when you play guys with uh little experience in, in this in this league, it's it's challenging to win any games, um, but um, I think a couple things happened. We've, we've got a lot of experience, um, but I think the most important thing was um, Tyrese blossomed into this amazing player. Like we, we run our own, you know, algorithms or analytics, whatever you want to call them. We we look at the offensive side of the ball. We look at defensive side of the ball. We we can talk about that a little bit in a minute. But, you know, we were a really, really good offensive team with a super young team, which usually doesn't happen. And, you know, I don't want to say it fell on one person, but Tyrese's metrics or analytics were off the charts. He's a top 10 offensive player right now. And, you know, I said in the – in the, in the press conference yesterday, you know, it, he's a little like Mahomes. Um, and he's just a super exciting player. But he makes everybody around him better. He gets so many easy shots with his pace, with his ability to get by people, with his jump passing, which is totally unique in the league. Um, so I think we really set our foundation offensively. Now, that's the good the bad is we weren't a very good defensive team. Um, I think we need some more size at the the wings. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> this is my 30-something year in the in the NBA as a player, coach, and, a, and an executive. And I would tell you this, that I had more fun with this team than I've ever had in my life. Just in the locker room, on the, on the airplanes, um, they just were a great group. They connected. Um, they liked each other. They got on each other sometimes like brothers, but then it was always in good faith. And so I think we took a step. We went from 25 wins to 35 wins. I like that progression. Now we've got to take it to where we go from 35 to 45 plus. 
And going from 25 to 35, they say in the NBA, you know, it, there's challenges, but you, it can be done. Going from 35 to 45 is a lot harder, and going from 45 into the 50s is even harder than that. So we have some challenges, but I like where we are. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm super optimistic on our future. Um, we have three first-round picks. Albeit two are late in the first round, and then we have a couple of really powerful second round picks potentially. Depends on how the lottery goes, but um, I think we have a lot of tools to go out and and get some really good players. I think our real challenge for, for from a management perspective is you take a kind of a, a slower, a steady, you know, keep building the foundation, or do you really try to go? and use some of these assets and, and go get, you know, a top-level player. The trades are hard in the league. I think we've done a decent job the last few years in trades. But um, I, I like I like what we have, and, and we have just a lot of um, opportunity to, uh, to improve the team. And so we're super excited right now because the, the season's over, but yet now what happens is, this is when management and the coaches get together and we try to decide what direction, what players we go after in free agency, what players we go after in the draft. How do we maneuver all these draft picks to best position us not only now, but potentially for the future. And there's, there's just, there's a lot of different uh, opportunities that we can, we can look at. We're, we're starting the models right now. We can't even get to our fifth model. We've got probably 50 models to go with all these uh, assets to go get players. He's Kevin Pritchard. He's with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Kevin, I'll fully admit, I was certainly one that had my hand raised a few years ago. Um, pretty, you know, unhappy or uncertain maybe about where the direction was going. And, and credit to you totally guys. <laughs> credit to you guys and your staff for, I think, first admitting it and then obviously pivoting to a point where there's real optimism that I haven't seen in quite some time here with your fan base. Kind of building off what you said there, it almost seems like the thought process this offseason is less quantity-based and more like high-end quality-based, where you, you have the five draft picks, but I think you even said it yesterday, there's probably a good chance you don't use all five of those, where you, you've kind of shifted to where this this rebuild has maybe been sped up a bit, and now it's, all right, how do we get that, that other major piece, and potentially this time next year, we're talking about a team that's in a legit playoff series. Couldn't agree more. We've, we've talked about exactly what you just said. This isn't quantity. This is now about quality. One of the things that, that, that we keep kicking around every single day is we have such a unique group that they really, really like each other that I have to be careful in bringing in somebody that doesn't fit that. You know, like I, I am a big believer that there's a fit. And so, look, we have some guys that had special years, Tyrese. I think Miles had a big year, and those guys are getting up in age where, you know, I kind of feel like they're they're partners in who we bring in. You know, like I, I think it's a misnomer that management makes the picks and coaches coach the you know players, and you know the players play with the players that we brought in. You know, I'm a collaborative guy. We'll, we'll sit in the room. I'll I'll talk to Tyrese a lot. Um, you know, this is 
his and Miles's culture. They're they're kind of driving the boat. Uh, Buddy helps with that, but it, it it really is. I don't see us bringing in five new guys. That's that's hard to do. We did that last year. Um, what it really is about, like you said, it's about finding the right person that is of the right position, but also fits our culture because we have a different culture than a lot of the NBA. Some of the NBA has a tough culture. Some of it has a, you know, a a me culture. Our team moved the ball more than any team I've seen in a long time. And I don't want to disrupt that. So uh, I agree. It's about uh, really quality. And, you know, when we look at the free agents, uh, when we look at the trade market, we'll have to make sure that they fit with what this team is about. Kevin, do you feel like, if I'm looking at building an NBA team, I'm going to use a bad analogy perhaps, but we'll do it like if you're building a a Lego build, okay? You have the key center piece of the Lego, like the, the, the block of Legos, and then once you get that designed, then you're just picking up little Lego pieces and attaching them here and there to accentuate the center of the block. Do you already have the center of the block, and are you in position now? Are you comfortable now with your core that you just need additional auxiliary Lego pieces, or do you still need another piece of that core to keep it bound? That's a really good question. Um, my my initial reaction, look, the Spurs in the, you know, early 2000 had a theory and I worked for the Spurs for a couple of years that you needed three real superstars, not all stars, superstars that fit each other. So they had Tim, which was the epitome and Ginobili and Tony who on their own probably couldn't win a championship, but fit with what Tim did. So I would say that Tyrese is that guy. Yes. Uh, especially the hardest positions in the NBA to get right now and get at a high level, <coughs> excuse me, is a point guard and then a four-man. Uh, point guard being the hardest. If you can get that quarterback, and some teams do it differently. Like, you know, uh, you could say LeBron's the qu- uh, quarterback in L.A. or Giannis at times is their quarterback and major uh, ball holder. And, you know, their usage rate is such so high. So I believe that Tyrese is that guy. Um, and I think uh, I, I know he is. But I, I do believe that we need to get that hybrid. We, we look at players and not as one, two, three, or four, or five anymore. We look at at a, a point guard. We look at them as combo guards. We look at them as wings. We look at them as hybrids. We look at them as power forwards, and we look at pure centers. And that's the way we play. That's the way Rick Carlisle plays. That's the way he substitutes. That's the way when we draw up a play, you're fitting into one of those categories. So I would say that getting a hybrid, a wing defender, a four, we'll be looking at those, but I also believe that this, you don't have to plug it in perfectly and that what Rick does really, really well, I mean, we'll throw out three point guards 
and Miles and someone else uh, like uh, Aaron Neesmith, who had a hell of a year, and um, and we'll play and we'll be successful. So part of me wants to get some positions, uh, like I said, but part of me wants to just get really good talent, really good guys that fit with what we're doing too. So it, 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 it's, it's a challenge because those positions are the hardest thing to get right now. Do you find – Kevin Pritchard's our guest. He's the president of basketball operations for the Indiana Pacers. He's on the Payless Liquors hotline. Kevin, do you find when you look at and, – and I know it's probably a tired angle. I, I get it, but I think that it, it still is a reality within this market – you know that you've had the two centerpiece guys that that people here, maybe even including the brass, thought were going to be built around guys in in Paul George and Victor Oladipo. That we know what happened in those cases. So does that create in you a dichotomy, an emotional dichotomy of making sure that you are indeed working with Tyrese Halliburton? To, to make sure that, that everything is copacetic from his standpoint, but at the same time also making sure that you're not over-investing in him should that situation in a few years come up again. Does that thought process battle within you at all? Well, I don't think it's just – it's a tough question, right? Um, I think we learn, quite frankly. I think I've learned – Uh, I think as leaders, um, along with Coach Carlisle, along with Chad Buchanan, I think we learn a lot. Um, I I think one of the things that we bring is, I think we're over ourselves, I guess uh, is how I would put it. So when 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 we go to build this team, yes. Will we ask our players, our top players, you know, who really fits, who doesn't. Players players know a lot more than sometimes, you know, executives or, you know, even though we've got three NBA scouts, players know a lot too. So it, it would be, you know, remiss for me not to talk to Tyrese. My job is to develop a good relationship with Tyrese. I work at it. Uh, I talk to him. And that can grow deeper in the future, I believe. Uh, I wished... I could have done a better job with Paul George. That was my first year. Uh, And Victor, it's interesting. Um, Victor and I were really close. He gets hurt and, you know, some things happened there. And then we weren't very close. And it's it's now to this day where we're we're talking some now. And um, I really like Victor. I wish I would have worked. But back to your point with Tyrese, yes. He, but I would say this, each individual player is different. You know, Paul or other players had different motives. And, you know, Paul was from the West Coast. Um, Tyrese is different. He He's a very grounded kid. Um, I think he recognizes that he had a great opportunity and he took full advantage and blossomed here. He spends a lot of time in the off season in Indiana. Last summer, he was here all the time, and he was in the community all the time. I would think that he'll probably be in this community a lot this this summer. So, what does that do? Like one of the things we talk about all the time is 
how do we get our players to dig deep roots here and that they feel great every single night that they go home and that they understand what being part of the Pacer and part of the Indianapolis and Indiana community means. And so we work hard at that. We work it harder now than we did when we had Paul and Victor. So that's something that we feel like super important. Kevin, I want to go back, and again, Kevin Pritchard is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. I want to go back to what you're saying about kind of the uh, need a 3-4, need a hybrid. W- would you say that the, the, the skill sets at those positions need to be more defensive-minded than offensive-minded? Well, the easy answer is we were 26 in defense this year. We were a really good offensive team. I think there's growth within our own team and organic growth with everybody, starting with Tyrese to Drew Nimhard to uh, Buddy to Neesmith, who you know had a really good year. Um, I think I think they all have to grow. Uh, Miles is already a pretty good defensive player, but he can improve too. But we also have to go get some guys that are more defensive minded too, and. Uh, what what has happened over the last few years in the NBA, it, it feels like it's becoming – if you ask me what the, the league was like 10 years ago and when we were making it to Eastern Conference Finals a few years ago, we had a team that could really defend and win ugly. And we, we just kind of could grind the game out. And Paul and Danny Granger and Roy Hibbert and David West and George Hill, they were incredible defenders. Um, the league has trans, uh, sort of transformed right in front of our eyes, and it's becoming a scoring league. But you still got to be an average or above-average defensive team when we look at historic you know, numbers to be in the top four in the East. And we want to be in the top four, whether it's next year or the following year. Our goal is to get into that. We're playing in the semis and the, and the finals of the Eastern Conference Finals. And so what we're trying to do is build a team that can get there, um, and we're going to have to have some guys that can go guard Giannis, who can go, go guard uh, Tatum and Jimmy Butler and these big wings that uh, are, are super effective at drawing fouls and uh, getting easy buckets for, the, for themselves and for their, their teammates. We've got to make it hard because once we get into a flow game, and Tyrese is controlling that, we get good shots. I mean, our shot creation ability this year was incredible. It's in the top three or four in the league. What we couldn't do is stop teams from getting to the line because we fouled too much and stop teams from getting uh, easy open shots. Last one for me, Kevin, and really appreciate the time this morning. Where's that balance for you and like, all right, we got to get the highest floor possible, but also realize, you know, let's try and shoot for the moon. Like, it seemed like you took the approach last year publicly, like, if we're going to rebuild, let's rebuild. Like, let's try and get to, you know, what you were saying just a few minutes ago about back to Eastern Conference title runs. So where do you stand on the whole, okay, let's rebuild to be, you know, high floor, consistent playoff team. But also, in this market, we have proven we can make deep playoff runs. How do we get back there? Well, I I believe that we could do that again, first of all. But it really goes to what I was talking about earlier 
in how we model things out. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll look at every potential model. What I mean is, you know, a model, what model looks like, how do you take, you know, the 26th pick, the 29th pick, uh, potentially the 32nd pick, how do we combine those things and what could that get and list those players and rank those players and does that make us a better team? Comparing that with 50 other models of maybe you take, uh, you know, a player or you take, you know, the sixth or seventh, eighth pick plus those three picks and uh, our cap space and take on a bad contract and go get a player. So you can see there's all these opportunities for us to go get. What we saw at the trade deadline is, and quite frankly, you know, we made some of the biggest offers I've ever made, and sometimes I look back and I go, holy cow, those were incredible offers. They didn't go through. Um, and that happens because in trades it takes two, two teams to agree. But I, I see us getting really aggressive. Um, I do not want to limit our upside. Um, if, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, sometimes with a – with a player, you can raise your your uh, floor, but sometimes you can limit your upside. And I really don't want to limit my limit our upside because I really believe Tyrese has got a big step. I I, I know Ben Matherin's got a big step. I know Drew Nemhard's got a big step. Um, if we draft some players. I hope that they'll have some ability to improve over time. When you look, by the way, Kevin, it, it, um, doesn't, happen, it the, doesn't happen quick. Sometimes it. Sometimes we want it to happen super quickly. Um, and and the biggest mistake I think that can be made here is is um, we try to force it too quickly, and that limits us. And so I don't want to do that either. Now the big swings you took in trades were for who? Can't tell you that. I had to take a big swing, right? You did. It was a good swing too. <laughs> what hey. about have initials and used to play in Bloomington? Oh, you know, there's there's, there's some guys that we like, and you know that it seems to be the profile. That's that's for sure. <laughs> hey, Kevin. Um, I'll tell you two guys I, I, I love when I watch your team. I already know. I love Aaron Neesmith. I know you do. I, I think I probably... Like, you like O'Shea Brissett, too, don't you? I do like O'Shea Brissett. Because I like yeah. guys that... I like guys that understand what their role is and that do it well and don't try and don't draw back by trying to overstep that and that's an outside observation i'm not in the building right but that's an outside observation but i also really like buddy healed because i think that typically like receivers and bat in football in basketball your scoring wings or your outside shooters are often guys that can play kind of selfishly i don't think he does i he think doesn't. that he he's he very mature but my question is, is it is there a risk in overpaying for off-court contribution and the auxiliary leadership and, you know, T.J. McConnell's like a, 
like a coach on the floor guy that you can just tell is is a glue guy. Can you overpay for that and get too loyal to it? You know, it's probably one of my biggest detriments. Like, I really fall in love with players. You know, what they do on the court, what they do off the court. Now, regarding TJ, TJ made a major, major step this year. Shooting was his Achilles, and he was a 50, 40, almost 90 guy this year with the way he plays on defense and the way he pushes the ball. But let's let's look at the first thing. You know, Aaron Neesmith, we did exit meetings. And exit meetings are supposed to last just not too long. We don't we don't go super deep. We, we, we talk about strengths. We talk about weaknesses. And one of the questions was with Aaron, and I love this kid. I mean, a yes, sir, no, sir, do anything, run through a wall for us to win. It was asked, and I think it was Coach Carlisle. He goes, you know, just out of curiosity, what position do you think you are? And what position will you play next year? And he, he literally – you know, kind of took a few moments. He's a smart, really intelligent kid. Went to Vanderbilt. And he kind of thought, and he, he looked at us, and he goes, I don't really care what position I play. I just want to help us win. And, you know, Rick goes, no, no, no. You want to play the four? Do you like the three the best? Or you think you're a two? Or a wing? Or a you know combo? And he goes, I just don't care. I just want to help us win. And it was like one of those things where you need to quit asking the question because I'm telling you what I want to do. I just want to help us win. And it was like I got I got a little, uh, you know, I got excited because you can't have you can't have too many of those guys, right? You just those guys help you win. They'll do anything, and I think you'll get better, quite frankly. So. Um, can you overpay for guys in the locker room or great locker room guys? I suppose you could. I guess if you went and gave a guy that's an average player a maximum contract, sure. But I think it's a balance of how good they are, how much they can produce on. But I always believe this, and I'm striving, and we're striving, striving for this in Indiana. That is, we really want guys that one plus one equals five, meaning they're, they're, when you put them on the court, they're better than the individuals. Because sometimes I see in the NBA, and I see it a lot, where you see five guys out there, and it equals two. Uh, you know, and, and I don't want that. I, I, want, I want our guys to go out there and make each other better. I evaluate <clears throat> games on three things. Did we play hard? Did we play unselfish? And then we play smart. And if we lose doing those two, those three things, I'll live with it every day. And quite frankly, there were some games we did that, and we lost. And that's just the nature of the NBA. Sometimes teams are better. I've resigned myself to the fact, by the way, that the numbers game are going to make it difficult on O'Shea Brissett to be back, but I'll leave that up to you. I'll let you crunch those numbers. But I do okay. love guys like that. No question about Me it. Me too. Me um, too. Kevin, we appreciate the time this morning. Great perspective, and uh, I know it's going to be a busy off season, but certainly one that's going to be exciting. We'd love to have you back anytime you want to opine further about it, and we'll let you get back to work on that. But I appreciate the time this morning. Glad to be on, guys. All right, when you hear that, 
Certainly one of the iconic voices you think of and legendary coaches who continues to racking the well-deserved honors and heading into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He is Gene Cady, and the coach joins us right now. Coach Cady, good Wednesday morning to you. How's life? Well, it's great. Good morning to you and everybody else. Is, Mer- is Myrtle Beach still still home for you right now? Yes, it is. That's where we live, my wife and I, Kathleen. Well, right now, this weather up here looks beautiful. I, I assume um, you, you enjoy the weather down there? Oh, it's always great to play a lot of golf, and uh, it's always pretty even keel, never too many storms. Well, the obviously big news for you, Coach, and congratulations, because um, a Basketball Hall of Fame is a Basketball Hall of Fame with Gene Cady in it, and you had a legendary career, a tremendous coaching career, and I'm I'm just curious. First and foremost, can you kind of take us back to when you got the call that you were going to be enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame in Massachusetts? Just what your overall emotions and reaction were? Well, it was very uh, much a surprise, and uh, of course, I was very much appreciative of their giving me that honor. And it doesn't happen just to anyone, so I know how hard it is. So I really appreciate the fact that they put me in this year. Coach, of everything on your resume, what are you most proud of? That my kids graduated, the players uh, became successful people in their own right, and that sort of thing, because that's why you go to school to get an education, so you can develop your own career. You know, when you look back on, you had so many great teams, Coach. Obviously, the trip, you know, the three straight with Todd Mitchell and Everett Stevens and Troy Lewis. That was a great unit. You know, you, you had great teams with Brian Cardinal. Uh, over the course of these, you know, Glenn Robinson goes without saying. Is there one particular group or one particular season that you find yourself dwelling on the most fondly of all the years that you had at Purdue? Well, I think the first one, we won the first uh, title. That was uh, huge for me because I had never had a opportunity to win something like that huge and in such a great league and uh, competition was always great and it's just a tremendous opportunity and it was something that all everybody pulled together and and we won and it was uh, very much appreciated now pardon my naivete here i'm going off memory would that have been jim rowinski's group yes man that uh-huh. guy yeah um yeah. brad brad miller and uh it just uh on and on and on. We had great players. You never win anything by yourself. Had very good assistants, Bruce Weber. Uh, he became a great coach in his own at Kansas State. So, you know, it's you always have to have a lot of help. And He's, the fans are the best. We had the best fans in the nation. It's the Basketball Hall of Famer. He's Gene Cady, of course, long-time, long-time coach at Purdue, and he's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Coach, if you don't mind, can you take us back to 1980 and going from Western Kentucky to West Lafayette? And, you know, you you hear about these hiring processes right now, and so much has played out in the media. What was that like? What was the hiring process like for you to go to Purdue? Well, uh, I was very happy at Western Kentucky, and as you know, they have a great tradition, too. So, it was an opportunity to go to a, a bigger league and a little more money and that sort of thing and great fans. So it was just an opportunity to move up in your career where you had everything in your uh, in your uh, way way to help recruiting, especially. What did you know about West Lafayette or Purdue? 
nothing other than Rick Mount came from there. <laughs> <laughs> the old Sports Illustrated cover was about it. That was about it. So, uh, but I was a big fan of basketball, so I knew a little bit about them. Yeah, they was they were. Uh, I was surprised that I got the call, and I was very happy and had the opportunity and moved on. You know, it's so funny, Coach Gene Cady's our guest on the Payless Sugars Hotline. I grew up in Indianapolis, and so like so many kids that grew up in the '80s, you know, the '70s, '80s, and '90s in Indiana, I loved college basketball, and I was an Indiana fan. And for that reason, boy, the rivalry was so you know so strong, and both teams were so good, and both programs were so good. Um, quite frankly, I couldn't stand Purdue, and I didn't like Gene Cady at all. And then <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, you know, one of the coach, one of the real, I, I guess, epiphanies for me into young adulthood was when I first got into media and and covered Purdue. And one day I just realized, I thought, you know what? I, I had this all wrong all along because, darn it, I love this guy. He's just fun to be around and cover, and and his players love him. And it was a real eye-opener to me that what you see sometimes from people is not at all you know, the reality. And that's part of that rivalry. And I just wanted you to touch on, for you, what did rivalries mean? How much did that fuel you? Not just Indiana, but maybe Illinois or whatever the teams it might be, but what, what were the rivalries, what did they mean to you as a coach? Well, I think that the thing about it is everybody thinks you hate the other coach. and Usually they're your, one of your best friends at the staff meetings or the uh, when you go to the Big Ten uh, league meeting. So it was a, mostly about the fans not liking uh, the other opponent if you had a, uh, that type of rivalry. So uh, it wasn't really about – the coaches, because usually they got along and they just competed. It competed in a way that you you wanted to be in the final four, and that was your goal. Have you talked to Coach Knight at all lately? I know he you know he's just lately, in the hospital. But, uh, now and then I do. We I talk about things that uh, he likes to talk about, and uh, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's about basketball, and sometimes it's just about stuff that uh, nobody would care about. And and each time you have to remind him you have a winning record against him, right? No, I don't. No, no, no. <laughs> we'll do that for you. How's that? I'm just happy to be at Purdue 25 years and have a great job with great fans and uh, uh, and a great academic uh, staff. And the teachers all supported us. And it was a great opportunity for me. I was so lucky. Coach, when you look at the, the class that you are going to go into the Hall of Fame with, Gene Best, Gary Blair, Pau Gasol, Becky Hammond, David Hickson, Dirk Nowitzki, Tony Parker, Greg Popovich, Dwayne Wade. Uh, I believe Jim Valvano is is in as a contributor as well. Yes. Is there anyone, when you look and you heard those names, was there any one of them that made it particularly special for you to go in with them? Well, all of them I highly respected and was so happy to be with them because they had equal careers and, and uh, not one in particular, but... Uh, uh, I was just happy to be part of this, the group. Gene Cady's with us, the Hall of Famer. Coach, I had no idea that you were drafted to play in the NFL. What was the Gene Cady football career like? Well, it was pretty good. I was pretty uh, pretty good in high school, and then I went to junior college in, uh, at uh, Garden City and um, made Little All-American against Chicago. We played the Little Rose Bowl in Phoenix and uh, – uh, had a, had a, uh, what I thought was a good career for me at least and I was 
happy just to be a football player. Was it injuries that stopped you, or what? What, what made yeah, the switch? My knee, knee, knee stopped me, and and probably ability. <laughs> so it was a. I had a great uh, time with my teammates, and I had great coaches, and and they were just a, a, a time in your life where you're so happy with what's going on, you don't really appreciate it. I don't think. Coach, did you did you find over the course of your coaching career? That when you look back on it, would you say that it that you had more flexibility or evolution as a coach in terms of just the X's and O's and watching the game evolve and adjusting to it, or the way young people evolved and having to adjust your approaches towards young people over the course of of the years? Well, I think in those days the parents were pretty strict, and I, I didn't have a whole lot of problem with that sort of thing. So. Uh, uh, maybe as the years went on, it got a little tougher for the coaches, but I just appreciated the fact that the parents were interested in their child. And and the main thing I wanted them to do is get the degree. Because without a degree, you're not going anywhere. So you have to be able to understand how important going to class every day was. And, and I know, obviously, you've touched on this a thousand times, but, you know, I think it's so special for Purdue fans to see you at games still a boilermaker you know still there rooting on the team and, and I'm I'm sure that a large part of that is because of the fact that you have one of your players now leading that program your overall thoughts on Matt Painter and his representation of the program in the university well I better like him I picked him they let me pick <laughs> who I wanted and that's who I picked so uh, he's a, a great guy uh, does a very, very good job recruiting and understands the game in a way that you're able to win with. So uh, he was a guy that uh, I really had fun coaching because he could get on him and he wouldn't take it personal. You know, that secession plan worked out so well, right? Bringing him in and then kind of handing things over. I mean, that's really rare, Coach, isn't it? To, to be able to, to have that opportunity, number one, for you to do that. But number two, for it to work out so seamlessly. Yeah, well said, because that's exactly what it, way it was. George King was my boss and a great boss, and I just had a lucky that he was uh, over me and let me. Sometimes I didn't act right, so my mom would call me in California and say, hey, you weren't talking to act like that. Knock it off. Dad's teaching me lip reading. So, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was not good when your mother got on you. <laughs> Coach, have you uh, talked with Matt since the season ended? Oh, yeah. Yeah, once in a while. But uh, I don't like to bother him because I know he's so busy with recruiting and taking care of his own uh, weightlifting and that sort of thing. So uh, I just don't want to get in the way. If he reached out to you and said, you know what, Coach, we, we have these great years, great great runs through Big Ten seasons, Big Ten tournaments, but the month of March, we, we just can't get over that hump. What would be your advice in handling that one-and-done nature of the NCAA tournament? Oh, wow. Uh, stay positive. Keep working with your kids. Work on fundamentals. Uh, make sure you get guys that listen and be able to uh, improve each year. You know, you had mentioned, Coach, the Final Four, and I've always felt like the Final Four is such a unique kind of unicorn because I think sometimes a lot of coaches, when they have their best teams, they fall short of the Final Four, and then maybe they get into the Final Four with that wasn't what you know. Izzo's gone with some of the teams that you wouldn't expect. You got to have a, so many things have to fall your way over the course of the tournament. For you personally, having that be that that last frontier that you never were able to cross in the Final Four, not always necessarily because of the fault of Purdue, as I mentioned, but was it 
a challenge to not get too hyper-focused on that and to be able to regroup and just stay the course of what you were doing? Yeah, I think you just wanted to be daily uh, doing things that will help your players. And I went to the Final Four as an assistant at Arkansas with Eddie Sutton, and I didn't get to go because I was interviewing for the Purdue job. So he was uh, he was at the Final Four, and I was getting a, a job that was much appreciated. Coach, last one from me, and again, congratulations. It's quite the honor. It's an unbelievable class that you're going in with, and extremely well-deserved, and we thank you for the time here on this Wednesday morning. What's the thing about college basketball right now that makes Gene Cady scratch his head? Well, I think that uh, some times it's about how they were raised. I don't know. I think that my dad was the best thing that ever happened to me because he made me respect authority and work hard and and uh, do the things it takes to be successful. So because of my father, I was able to not take all the criticism or whatever you call it with the coaches wherever I went. So I had great coaches in junior college and uh, had great coaches I played, and I just appreciate the fact that they were there to help me do things right. You know, the good news is that 78 final – I think it was 78, the Final Four when Arkansas went, and I think it was in St. Louis. So at least you weren't, like, missing out on a trip to Los Angeles or New Orleans or somewhere like that, Uh right? No, I, I was part of it, but the thing about it was I didn't get to enjoy it as much as I'd like to because I was interviewing for the Purdue job, so it turned out okay. That's I was going to say, in the long run, <laughs> it worked out for you, obviously, Coach. I, I'm curious about this. Um, in other sports, I don't know how basketball works, Coach. In other sports, when you go into the Hall of Fame, you have someone that, that presents you or introduces you. Uh, is that the case with the Basketball Hall of Fame? And if so, have you thought about who it will be that will be your presenter? Well, uh, that's just coming up, so i got to get that all organized. Uh, I don't know exactly what the details are or how far you can go to get them and that sort of thing. But, yes, we have the same kind of situation where you're you're going to be uh, put together and interviewed and, and you'll have somebody there as a sponsor. Have you thought about who it would be? Like, if you had to list the folks that you you would say are the most influential over the course of your career, who would it be? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I, uh, probably probably uh, uh, Bruce Weber. Uh, that He's a guy that uh, we stuck together and did the things it took to be successful at whatever job we were at or in working in. And then uh, he was a guy that stood by me and was the most successful. Has Bruce Weber ever had like a bad day? Whenever you talk to that guy, literally, like the few times that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to Bruce Weber, including on this program, I'm ready to go run a marathon as soon as I'm done talking to him. <laughs> He's very positive and uh, great for players because they understand what they need to do and how to get there with him. So it was a great opportunity for me to have him as an assistant. Coach, congratulations. Um, just an Thank awesome, you. awesome honor. And again, so well-deserved. Life in Myrtle Beach sounds great for you. And we look forward to seeing you uh, get that uh, induction and enshrinement of the Basketball Hall of Fame. And thank you very much for the time this morning. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, go Boilers because uh, we're always watching and always pulling for them in all sports, not just basketball. Hey, Coach, I wanted to say one other thing. Um, you know, I, I think that when a person is selected to go into the hall of fame obviously they're you know you're being it's represented that gene katie has gone into the hall of fame and as i mentioned you know i grew up watching a lot of purdue basketball and then i i watched you from afar after your time at purdue and your connection to the university 
and I just don't know that there's that anybody can ask for a better representation of where they worked and 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 who they are. And I feel like a little bit of Purdue is going into that Hall of Fame with you, and that I, it's my hope that Purdue fans can recognize and appreciate that, and understand the great representation not only professionally but personally that you have been for that university. And I just think that I speak for a lot of people in Central Indiana and the state of Indiana, and thanking you for the way in which you have carried yourself to be able to carry those folks into the Hall of Fame with you. And and I just think it's a tremendous honor for you. Well, thank you. You never do it by yourself. My wife is always by my side helping me, uh, making sure things are taken care of in the proper fashion, how to treat people, how to approach a, a, a crowd or whatever. But uh, you never do it by yourself. You need help. You have to understand that it's about us, not me. And that's always where I felt about when I played and when I coached and, and when I was assistant. Well, your mom will be lip-reading from afar and telling you that Dad's awfully proud. So congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, they're not here anymore, but uh, I know up uh, in heaven they'll be looking down and saying that they did the right thing to get me in the right path. So thank you very much for having me on today. And hello to all the Boilermaker fans, and I appreciate you having me today, today and interviewing me. Thank you, Coach. You're welcome. Thank you. Be safe. Thank you to Kevin Pritchard for joining us. If you missed that, that will be on the podcast as well as our next guest, Stephen Holder. Gene Cady, by the way, at 9 o'clock. But we'll focus on the Colts right here. From ESPN.com, he is Stephen Holder. Stephen, two weeks and a day out. You think there's a consensus inside that building on what they're going to do? I I don't think there is a consensus because – I don't think it's that easy to come to one when you don't know how things are going to play out in front of you. So that's where I think they have an issue. Now they, they obviously have a draft board and, and there's an order there. And at least as it relates to the quarterback, they, they will have them stacked. Now, can that change? Yeah, maybe. And they just literally got done doing, you know, they're actually, I don't think they're even done yet. They may still have a, a couple of the, the top seven visits uh, top 30 visits excuse me left uh with some of these quarterbacks I, I forget the schedule but the point is um there's still some room for that to have some movement you know so um i would say right now they're probably close but i i think the uncertainty in how things are going to go in terms of order i think that's probably causing a little bit of fluctuation for them fully acknowledge this is quite the hypothetical but if you don't mind let's say Shane Steichen is more Will Levis focused let's say Chris yeah. Ballard is more Anthony Richardson focused um, would Jim Ursay then be the tiebreaker that is going to be fascinating actually <laughs> I don't think we know um, Jim has given the impression that he's fine just staying out of it I, I don't think he wants to play that role, and I don't think he intends to play that role. Now, I know coming off of last season, that probably sounds a little bit puzzling to people because he was pretty damn involved last season, but I think that's also why he is taking a very much uh, a hands-off approach right now. Uh, He doesn't like that reputation, quite frankly, and I think he's going to let these guys work it out. Now, the question for me is how do Chris Ballard and Shane Steichen work it out. You know, if there is, you know, a a disconnect there, or just a disagreement, you know, which is fine. It's not as if, not as if there's a, you know, that, that says something terrible about them. I mean, they're allowed to disagree. The question is, how do they 
come to terms with that. I have no idea. And, and this is a very new relationship. And it'll be very interesting to see how that works out. I mean, I would tell you that if you're Chris Ballard, I think you have to give your coach some benefit of the doubt, particularly him being an offensive coach and and him wanting to kind of get off on the right foot. But it's a big, big decision. So I get it if, the, if it takes a lot of deliberation. Steven, we have, Kevin and I, spent, and I, I did some research yesterday, We've spent 98% of our shows since March 1st talking about four quarterbacks. And then it, got, it, it dawned on me. I'm more shocked about you doing research. <laughs> well, it's true, too. No, but it, but it dawned on me, uh, honestly, is there any chance, Stephen Holder, that after the NFL draft, Kevin and I are going to walk in here and look at each other and go, we spent all that time talking about those four guys, and then they went ahead and didn't take a quarterback with their first pick? Any chance that happens? Uh, I I really don't think so. Um, I, I just think there's too much pressure on them. I really, really think. And I don't normally think that matters. But I think it matters here, like a lot. I, I just, I, I think not just public pressure, but even even from a from an internal standpoint. I mean, Jamerce is not, you know, making some kind of, uh, he's not walking around making ridiculous demands or anything right now that I'm aware of, but but there's still pressure there. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, right? I mean, we met with Jim Mercer at the owners' meetings uh, for about 45 minutes. Well, I mean, like your show, what do you think the majority of that 45 minutes was spent talking about? <laughs> okay, so it, it's not just you; it's them too, right? I mean, they're talking about quarterbacks on and on and on as well. So I I just think that where they are and and what the stakes are for them right now I, I don't think they can they can't turn the page organizationally okay until they solve this problem now that quarterback pick might not ultimately solve the problem but you gotta you gotta take a you gotta take a shot right and so until they do that they can't organizationally move on to whatever the next question is in my mind. From ESPN.com, he's Stephen Holder. He's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Stephen, I don't know if you saw this earlier today, but Tom Palacero uh, from NFL Network reported that the Colts have converted $5 million of DeForest Buckner's salary into a signing bonus for this season, clearing $2.5 million in cap space. Um, your best guess as to why they would do that? Are you going Lamar Jackson? Are you going another free agent? Are you going, it's probably an extension-related move for Jonathan Taylor and or Michael Pittman? Uh, I think it very well could be the latter is my guess. Uh, if they were, if it was going to be a bigger move, uh, I think there are likely other avenues they could go where they could, you know, they could clear more space. Uh, this this only gives them a little bit. Right. Um, I, I would I would think I would think it's probably just trying to give yourself some some room to operate. I mean, they still got you know they they still got to sign this draft class. Uh, that's going to cost you you know several million right there in cap space. They they are talking about extensions, right? So that's that's a reality, and 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 they have not in the last couple of years. They haven't been able to structure contracts in the way they prefer because their cap has gotten a little tighter. I mean, you go back to the, the Quentin Nelson contract and they, they really had to 
to spread that out with a lot of signing bonus, which is not something they like to do. And so they like to to kind of go year to year with the cap, not to get into the weeds, but but when you don't have a lot of cap space, you end up having to spread out the cap impact for your big contracts. If you have the cap space, what you can do is you can you can put a, a bulk of it in the first year and then give yourself flexibility in the years to come. So I think it's really just a matter of them trying to operate more along the lines of, of where they want to be. Uh, they, they haven't had to do this stuff in the past. And so this is a little new for Colts fans, them having to make these, these adjustments to contracts. But that's what happens when your cap gets a little tight and they do have a lot of re-signed players who they drafted who have now you know earned big contracts. Steven, what percent of the way, 50%, 70%, what percent of the way are the Colts to having a roster that is, I guess you're never at 100%, but having a roster that is ready to potentially have a young quarterback plugged in to that is conducive to that quarterback being able to organically be comfortable in learning mm-hmm. the NFL? Hmm. That's a good question, and it's interesting because I would have had a very different answer before last season. <laughs> you know, I thought even even coming out of 2021, as badly as it ended, you know, it was it was easy to say to yourself, okay, look, maybe reset the quarterback spot, and and maybe this isn't that bad. But then last year happened, and and now it's just it's muddied things. You know, it, you want to say, oh, well, this team's terrible. <laughs> but I also know that's probably not entirely true, too, right? So I don't know. I I don't think they're as close as as maybe they want to believe the Colts themselves. You know, I, I don't think that. Uh, in terms, of, if you're asking a percentage, uh, I think maybe fifty percent. But but I also don't think. The other fifty percent is is as much of a as much of an issue as as maybe we think. I mean, I, I think they could add a, a few important pieces and make up a big percentage. Um, and, and frankly, if you depending on how good the quarterback is, that number changes. If that makes sense, right? I mean, if you if the quarterback's really good, then you, that team doesn't need to be at at 75%, you know, for the quarterback to be able to fill the other remaining percentage. I mean, that's what I see. I think they have a viable defense still, even though it, it did kind of it did kind of fall apart late in the season, but I thought it's still viable and and hopefully Shaquille Leonard is 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 on his way back and that makes a big difference, right? I mean, so they they have it they have some pieces, certainly, but the quarterback, it just obscures everything. When you just don't have that quarterback piece, it's just so hard to really to, to really evaluate your roster because the quarterback is a big piece of it. So it goes back to what I said before about being unable to turn the page and, and figure out the rest of your business you know, while not having that question answered. Steven, I, if you don't want to get you know go down this path of maybe a little bit of sourcing, I totally understand. But I, I do feel like you have – you know, made it known that you think there's some pretty real interest for the Colts with Anthony Richardson. Um, if you want to share, would you say that you get the vibe based off the Richardson camp, or you get the vibe based off the Colts camp? Oh, both. I think. I think there's a couple of things. Number one, uh, actions for sure. Right. I mean, just level of interest and in, and in how they've gone about learning about him for one. 
And and then yes, I think you do learn you do learn some intricacies about things people say, things people do, observe, etc. You know, by talking to to the players' camp as well. So yeah, I, I think it's a it, it's a little bit of both. I, what I what I have told people is I don't have the same level of intel on Will Levis, right? So like that is something I've been very honest about. So. There's there's a lot there I don't know, right? And and that's I'm perfectly comfortable saying that. But I I also know enough to know that the way they've approached Anthony Richardson to me um, it seems pretty genuine and and speaks to them being very very interested. And and look, I, I also think there's there's also some of that some of my evaluation there is also my own evaluation, which is. I think with him, the, what what sort of tilts the scale for me is upside because I think I think all these players' floors are fine. I, I think they'll be fine, um, and, and we can get into the, the completion percentage with Anthony Richardson. But I just think when you talk about just how little he's played, I think if he had another year of college uh, in a in a half decent situation, obviously it would be a much different conversation last uh, next year in the draft, right? So in the long term. Three or four years from now, I don't think I don't think it's going to matter. I think the, the growth is going to be the growth, no matter what. Uh, if, if you if you don't think he's ready now, it doesn't mean he won't be a, the same quarterback three or four years from now, right? So I don't I don't necessarily care that much about that. Um, we can't judge him with the same eye maybe as these other players because he just hasn't played enough. So anyway, um, I hope I answered your question, but I, I, it definitely is sort of a mix when I talk about you know, what I've observed and learned about Richardson. I get this feeling where, where that information has come from. I should say, yes, Steven, let me give you like this, this gut feeling I have. And then you can tell me that my gut feeling is totally inaccurate. I get this feeling that will Levis is probably the safer of the two in terms of knowing or understanding what you are going to get right out of the box. Anthony Richardson has more intrigue because it appears as though there's more open space for him to to open up the Ferrari, which he hasn't been able to do yet, and that's intriguing. And so, therefore, there's more interest in Richardson league-wide than with Levis, and that part of the Colts getting tantalized by Richardson could, in fact, be the peer pressure that there is this greater intrigue about him league-wide than with Levis. Is that an unfair statement? I think there's some truth to that for sure. I, I mean, what you the way you describe Richardson is true. I mean, I, I think with Levis, look, I mean, it's kind of what I just said. I mean, the floor for all these players is pretty, I, I think, pretty decent, a pretty decent floor in terms of what they, at least we think, right? We could be wrong about all of this, but but from what it appears and from what from what NFL people seem to uh, seem to observe, the floor. It's not that it's not it's not low. It's it's high enough, right? The question is, I think you're right. You're in this AFC conference with with very very high end quarterbacks. Uh, you look back at say Patrick Mahomes, and I'm not comparing anybody to Patrick Mahomes. I'm just saying, Patrick Mahomes. There were a lot of questions about how it would translate, how he played in college, all of that, right? I'm not not talking about completion percentage or any of the numbers, none of that. The style and that kind of thing, right? How would it translate? And what what we know now is that he had these these really um, unique abilities that ultimately 
have made him the quarterback who he is. So I think that's something you got to think about. Josh Allen, I think, also another guy, really unique abilities, right? Just his 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 athleticism and his arm strength, uh, his the, the power he sort of brings to the position. I mean, those are unique things that set him apart. And and that I would also say, as it relates to Chris Ballard, what does he look for? He looks for uniqueness. He looks for unique traits like that. Uh, you can look at a lot of the players he's drafted. Uh, even early in the draft, they have really unique aspects about them. And so that's that's one of the things that I also kind of bring into the conversation when I think about how they may approach this. Steven, last one for me, and thanks for uh, making a little adjustment with us here on this Wednesday morning time-wise. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just guessing based off your employer, it will probably be somebody within your building that would get this, but has there been like any whispers or chatter about Jeff Saturday having a tell-all on ESPN, or <laughs> I, you know, even like a story with you? I, I, it's been you know eerily quiet since we got him on the boat back when Shane Steichen got hired, you know, a couple months ago. Yeah, I, I haven't heard anything about Jeff Saturday. It's a good question, though. I I can't say that I haven't wondered what he's up to and and what's next. Um, maybe I'll give him a call. That might be interesting my last call with him was very interesting so I, i'll leave it at that but uh, <laughs> i i kind of am curious so you make a good point but no i have not heard anything about that it would be it would certainly be uh compelling and i would watch it i'd say that has there been an official announcement that he's going back to espn no have we seen no, that not, not to my I, knowledge i don't know anything about yeah. it that doesn't mean they haven't talked but right. i i don't know anything about that no it, it, i am kind of curious what his next move is going to be i know he has some some outside business interests that were pre-existing and, and i know he's he's obviously been indulging in some of that but uh and i don't know the details i just know he has some other business interests that you know people got to make money right that's fine so um but yeah i don't know what else is going on with him from a media perspective though do you think his is his employment i'm talking future obviously with the indianapolis colts completely out the door and by that i don't mean coaching i mean working in some sort of suit and tie venture right well, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I know that he, we do know that he was helping them in a consultant capacity uh, before taking on the job as, as the head coach, the interim head coach. Uh, my understanding is that he and Frank Reich in particular, I, I wrote this earlier, they had a sort of a standing weekly meeting um, that where they would talk about different concepts. And I know that him and, uh, former offensive line coach Chris Strasser talked pretty regularly. So, I, you know, I don't – but that's a very different thing than talking about a full-time job. Um, I don't know. I, I think right now, you know, he's got uh, – they, they have a, they have a coaching staff in place. There's nowhere to even approach that right now. I mean, don't you think, though, it would be hard for him to ever come back in, like, say, an offensive line coach capacity. Well, I, that, I yeah. I, I mean, could yeah. I see him you, working in for an office? I don't think he yeah. wants to. Or even, like, community relations yeah. liaison, you know, like a David Thornton-type role, yeah. player relations, that kind of thing. I, I, I this, is my, this is me speculating, okay? I'll be clear about that. But I think he's going to keep his distance for a while. Yeah. I really do. I, I just – that is my impression, that Jeff Saturday is going to keep his distance for a while. I'm not saying forever. 
but but for the foreseeable future. Doesn't mean he won't show up, you know, if somebody goes in the ring of honor. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm just talking about anything in an official capacity. I can't see it, for, at least for quite some time. And for all parties. I just, I just don't think it ended well, you know? Right. And for all parties involved, I think that's the best thing at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, Steven, great stuff. Thanks, man. We'll see you later today. All right, guys.